Hey everybody, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, we're here with Trinity Radio. It's a bit of a crossover episode. I've got uh, Braxton and Jonathan with us. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Guys, this is exciting. It's a long time coming. I mean, I think I... Maybe my memory doesn't serve me right, but I think that I talked to Braxton a long time ago, like maybe a year or two ago, about doing some content with us, and I don't know if I'd ever followed up or what happened, but I'm super excited to have my friends from Trinity Radio uh, with us on Remnant Radio today. It's going to be an exciting program. Before we dive in, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded, uh, so if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description to do so. You can give a one-time gift to PayPal or a reoccurring gift to Patreon. If you choose to give on Patreon as low as five bucks a month, you'll get access to extra content. Some of that extra content may be information about a conference that we are going to release to the broader audience as early as next week. So uh, lots of really cool stuff happening there on Patreon. Uh, without further ado, I want to introduce you to my friends. Uh, I've got Michael there on the top, uh, Jonathan bottom right, Braxton bottom left. In case you guys uh, aren't familiar, uh, M Michael, is there anything that we need to catch the folks up on before we introduce our friends? Oh, catching the folks up. Man, I, I don't know. I, I think... I think probably not. I think let's just introduce uh, Braxton and Jonathan, Trinity Radio. Uh, guys, as Josh said, we're super excited to have you uh, on. And uh, maybe you could just get us started by telling us a little bit about your ministry. Uh, if somebody doesn't know about what Trinity Radio is, tell us, tell us uh, how they can connect with it and what you guys do. Yeah, so um, Trinity Radio is uh, an apologetics channel that we talk a lot about theology too, theology and apologetics, and a lot of response videos to uh, skeptics, atheists, and people of other worldviews. But it's a, it's a channel that kind of started in conjunction with our seminary that Jonathan and I are both professors at, and I'm in administration as the president of the seminary, and that's Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. But for people here on YouTube, what we're mostly uh, interested in doing is just providing a rational Christian response with Christian evidences and things like that to people that are challenging the Christian faith. And that, that could come in the realm of, of cultural issues. Uh, we talked a little bit on the phone about that, but cultural issues like how we should feel about the, the things that are going on that sometimes are politicized but are moral issues. And, um, and then, of course, the, the things that we say to defend the actual claims of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus, the existence of God, and stuff like that. And right now, as a matter of fact, and maybe we can talk about this in a little while, we're working on a documentary with a local church, and we have a seven-time Emmy award-winning director, and we're making a documentary on detransitioners who are uh, people who went trans and then are now detransitioning out of that and what their story is like. So that's a little bit of what we kind of do on Trinity Radio. Fantastic. Wow. Jonathan, same same question. Let me toss it over to you. Tell us a little about yourself, your connection uh, with Trinity Radio and, and your affiliation with the school there. Yeah, uh, I'm the Vice President of Academic Affairs and Professor here at Trinity College of the Bible Theological Seminary, where I do have the nicest office, not the biggest, but the nicest True. office on campus. Um, I'm the co-host of the Trinity Radio uh, YouTube channel, and then I also manage the Trinity Radio Extra YouTube channel, and then I have Theology Geek Fitness, which is a fitness channel for theology geeks to get in shape. I used to be morbidly obese, and then I dieted down and, and started exercising, and so a lot of people asked me how I did it, so I made a whole channel 
dedicated to Whoa. helping people okay. get started on the fitness journey. My mind is blown that you were morbidly obese. I, I mean, because uh, you're definitely not now. So I don't know. He's okay. like he's I'm, like Josh. Totally viable. You could totally believe Josh was morbidly obese, but Jonathan. <laughs> you no know what I when I look at Josh, he looks formerly obese. But no, <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> If if you go watch early Trinity Radio extra or Trinity Radio episodes of our live stream, you can see in it was in 2019, starting in uh, April, I was at my heaviest at 220, and then I slowly worked down to about uh, 145. And since then, uh, even in my I was in my early 40s then, now I'm mid 40s now. You can see that I've bulked up <laughs> since then, uh, packing on muscle. You know, so. Uh, for he you, decreased man. that I might Good increase. <laughs> he decreased that I could increase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I slimmed down and he, yeah. he he thickened up a bit. So yeah, well, in Braxton, I saw Mike Winger is in our chat. So shout out to Mike Winger, one of our other yeah. favorite YouTubers, and uh, he he made a little comment about Josh imitating you with the whole baldness thing. So. While we're on the, whole it feels like looking in the mirror. That's what it feels like. I saw him, and now I don't know if we officially consider him a part of the bald community because it looks like he's done this voluntarily without male pattern baldness, which of course is part of the criteria. But I'm happy that he's it's here. Correct. Left. Some, some, some. How does it? How does the the, the scriptures read? You know, uh, uh, some some are bald for the cause of Christ. Others are are, are bald. You know, by birth. Um, yeah. So my, mine is the latter, okay. not not the former. I thought you were yeah. going to quote, "Go on up, you bald head." That, no, that one came no, with some pretty severe one. consequences. That could be one of my yeah, favorite Bible stories, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, we will we will digress on obesity yes, and baldness. So we need to dive into the program because we're just going to have too much fun here uh, on the show. We'll actually give some extra Patreon content uh, with Braxton uh, about uh, Braxton and Jonathan about obesity and baldness in the little after party that we're going to do after this program. But let's dive into apologetics. We might have some people here on the show who are not familiar with the subject of apologetics. Could you maybe define apologetics and how you both maybe got interested in pursuing this field of study? Yeah. So for me, uh, I was the son of a megachurch pastor and grew up with great Christian parents. And uh, if, if I get to heaven and find out there were two perfect people besides Jesus and it was my parents, it wouldn't be too much of a shock. They've just been incredible. And uh, but when I was a teenager, um, and, and actually I started pastoring when I was 20 years old, probably too young to be pastoring, but I don't think I messed anything up or, or hurt anybody. But, uh, I, I was, I experienced, a, a real challenge in the form of a close friend. One of my close friends who had grown up in a conservative Christian family began to experience same sex attraction and try to wrestle with how his faith fit into that. And he, quickly realized to his credit that he couldn't square um, the gay lifestyle with a biblical lifestyle. He tried to do that for a while and see if it worked, but it didn't work out. And as a result, he just kind of walked away. And ultimately, now he says he's an atheist. And so that rattled me. It didn't rattle me in the sense that I, that I was confused about my faith or not sure I believed, but it rattled me in the sense that I wanted to be able to give an answer that I couldn't give. And I wanted to be able to say something that I didn't know how to say. And so that's really what apologetics is. It's, it means the defense of the Christian faith. Now, you could be an apologist for a lot of things. There are Muslim apologists. There are Mormon apologists. If someone might say, well, that guy's a Trump apologist. All he cares about is defending Trump or Obama or, or Biden or whatever. But to be an apologist is to defend something. But as Christian apologists, we're defending 
the truth of the Christian message. And we believe that the Bible uh, not only tells us that we should do that in places like 1 Peter 3.15, which says, be ready and willing always to give an answer to anyone asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. But we also see it modeled in places like Acts 17, where Paul uh, shows that there's one God who made everything and then uh, says that God raised a man from the dead and that you should repent because of all of these things because he's coming in judgment. And so really that's that's getting into apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith and getting into it for me was initially and still in, and still is to a large degree an attempt to reach my friend for Christ and everything else that came after that uh, was just kind of gravy. I'm still doing this to reach people like my friend and including my friend. Amen. Amen. Okay, Jonathan, uh, I'd love to hear because we got to hear a little bit about uh, Braxton's sort of what catalyzed an interest in apologetics for him. And so, Jonathan, I'm I'm curious for you because most people most people aren't born again instantly being interest uh, interested in some of the questions that apologetics are answer answering. Um, some people, but how did it work for you? Were you just born again and immediately interested in the age of the earth and evolution and uh, you know, an apologetic about same-sex attraction and so on, or or did it happen gradually for you? How did it How did it take place? Well, for me, it was I, I uh, was blessed to be raised in a Christian home, and um, I, I had given my life to Christ at, at seventeen, and I had gotten involved in the Christian music uh, business, at least in the, kind of a local regional uh, area uh, in south Southwest, mainly uh, Arkansas, Texas. Uh, things like that, just traveling around with a Christian band. We had a lot of fun doing that. But as I eased on further into my 20s, uh, I became a licensed barber and got married. And we had, uh, I was raising my stepson. We were going to church. And then um, with our middle child, uh, Noah, he had complications at birth and was in the NICU unit. And it was really difficult on us. And that's about the time that my wife was having certain struggles with her faith and I started to have certain questions. And so I went to my dad um, and he, you know, he was uh, our Sunday school teacher at our church. Great man of God. He's no longer with us. But uh, I, I said, dad, uh, I'm having all these questions. Can you help me with all this? Cause the things that I hadn't really ever thought about much until you experience something like that in your life where you, you know, you can't even touch your newborn baby and you're wondering why is this happening and all of that. So my dad said, you know, son, I don't really have uh the answers to these questions, but I know uh, who does. And so he went to his bookshelf because my dad was an avid reader and he pulled two books off the shelf. He pulled uh, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict is like one of the probably an early edition of that. And then he had The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And he says, um, this stuff you might like. Why don't you read these? And I said, well, I'll read one of them. And this is no slight to Josh McDowell, but simply because uh, the copyright date on uh, the case for Christ was later. I figured this was more recent. It would be better, which is, that's not always true about newer books versus older books. But I got that. And then I, I started really getting more interested in the interviews with the scholars than I was his whole story about being an atheist reporter and his wife. I didn't really care about that. I was just really interested in what, what his conversations were like. So I started searching those people out. And then you just, I'm sure this has happened for a lot of uh, people interested in the apologetics is you go down rabbit trail, uh, ra you know, rabbit trails, and all of a sudden you're just kind of engulfed in apologetics and it becomes everything. And you just uh, start soaking up as much as you can. And since um, I had a burgeoning barber business in between uh, haircuts, 
um, I would be sitting around reading or we'd be watching videos on the laptop computer or whatever in the barber shop. And of course, they tell you in the barber business, don't talk about politics or religion. And in the barber shop, that's all we ever talked about was uh, politics and religion. So that was kind of my gateway into this. And then I eventually decided uh, to I kept hearing about William Lane Craig and, and watching his videos and debates. So I want to be like that guy. So um, I, I wanted to go to Biola to get an apologetics degree, but turns out you have to get a bachelor's degree. And I had a barber's license. So I signed up for community college, got my associates. Then I went to um, a university to finish my bachelor's degree. And then I went to Biola uh, to get the master's degree. And by then I was just kind of burnt out with apologetics because it kind of has a, a way of doing that when you're just doing it to entertain yourself and to satisfy your own intellectual curiosity. Um, but then uh, I discovered uh, Braxton Hunter and what I really liked what he was doing at Trinity. And that's where I decided to go pursue my doctorate and kind of buddy up with uh, this Braxton Hunter fellow is because he, he, he is primarily an evangelist and whether that's uh, holding meetings at churches where, where he's uh, presenting the gospel to groups or just in his day-to-day -day life, sharing the gospel with his neighbors, evangelism was his number one thing. And he used apologetics as uh, a means of evangelism because it was just something that went along with evangelism, not something for its own sake. And so that really reinvigorated apologetics for me that there's actually a point to this. And the point is not winning arguments or, or, or intellectually satisfying our own curiosities, but it really was to reach people for Jesus. And if if your main interest in apologetics is just intellectual debate and stimulation, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. And Braxton Hunter was uh, my inspiration to, to get back into apologetics and see it as just something in the tool belt of the evangelist. That's pretty cool, man. I, that, that story kind of jumpstarts my next question, I suppose, because in that you were saying he was using this for evangelism. And Braxton, you had said on the top of the show that there are different kinds of or apologists. There are Muslim apologists and Trump apologists, and you can you can make a defense and reason for just about anything. So when we talk about apologetics, are we talking, I want to make sure we get our categories right, are we talking about a specific subject that is meant to defend the Christian faith um, and to defend the identity and person of Christ, you know, uh, faith and repentance, those kinds of things? Or does it also include kind of cultural issues? I mean, our culture feels like it's spiraling out of control. We've got, you know, drag queens reading to kids in libraries, you know, abortion debates, like all of these different things that are certainly moral debates, but but does it get to the heart of the Christian faith? So is there a kind of cultural apologetics? Is there kind of a classical apologetic? I don't, I don't know if those are even the right categories that you want to work with, but can you can you maybe help us distinguish the two of those and the purpose of apologetics? Yeah, so when you use the term classical apologetics, it makes me think of the five uh, general uh, approaches to apologetics sure. that Christians might might take. And there's a great Ontological, book on that, five yeah, yeah. views on apologetics by Zondervan's Counterpoint series that goes through. And classical is one of a few different approaches, and I'm a classical apologist, but for the question that I think you're asking, uh, there's all of that. There's the stuff that that people who are Christian apologists, people like the Josh McDowell or the Sean McDowell or the Lee Strobel, the, these are the things that defend the truth claims of Christianity. And so obviously that's one thing. But then there's this other thing over here where we've got all of these cultural issues like abortion and and the trans issue right now and all of these kind of things. And, and how should a Christian feel uh, and, and how should an apologist, someone who defends the Christian faith, function with those things? And I would say that 
these things over here, the, the things that have to do with the truth claims of Christianity, that, that, got, that us being able to show that there's good reason to believe God exists and that God raised Jesus from the dead. This now gives me a framework where I can then build, okay, I have, I have an epistemology, a way of thinking. I have a framework for now thinking of things as uh, morally evil or morally good or right or wrong and, and these kind of things. And I can work up from Scripture's teaching to declarations about moral issues and cultural issues that go on. And ultimately, I think that the reason I can say meaningful things about cultural issues like abortion or transgender is because of the framework that I have. But I also think it's true that, that in, in our day that we can make arguments against the uh, logic of or the lack of logic in some of these arguments in favor of the trans or the gender ideology and those kind of things uh, or abortion from without using religious argumentation. I think that can be done. Now, I think ultimately you better have a framework and, a, and, a, and a, an underpinning that'll, that makes sense of all of that. But I think uh, there are there are some good arguments for those things. And I think that Christians should uh, know some things about how to engage the culture, because as I've said about abortion for a long time, I think that this is not a political issue. This is a moral issue. Now, it's a moral Amen. issue that's been criticized, but it's still a moral issue. It's not a political issue. Yeah. And when you said the five classical arguments, that's like, and I, I'm about, an, I'm like not super sharp on my apologetics, like the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, the moral argument, those would be like those five classical arguments. Is that right? So, so here's a way to think about it. So you've got five approaches. How should we do apologetics? And that's classical, evidential, classical, just oh, once classical. Presuppositional. Sure. Th think of William Lane Craig. He wants to show that number one, God exists. And that number two, God raised Jesus from the dead. And that's the classical method. He may use several arguments, like you mentioned, the, the, the Kalam he'll use, or a good design argument, or a moral argument. And we can talk about those if you want. But he'll use something like that to establish that God exists. And then step two, he wants to show that uh, Jesus, uh, that God raised Jesus from the dead, uh, vindicating his claims. That's a classical apologist. The difference between that and the position that we call evidential apologetics they're both evidential in the sense that they give evidence. But is that an evidentialist like Gary Habermas or Mike Lycona, if any of you know those names, those are people that show up in Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. Well, uh, they're just going to go for the resurrection. They're not going to mess with all these arguments from philosophy and science about whether God exists. They're just going to go for the resurrection because they think, if I can show you there's good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, well, then that kind of that kind of does the work right there. And then there are a few other uh, approaches, cumulative case, uh, presuppositional, as you mentioned, and something called reformed epistemology. But the, what you're talking about, yeah, are theistic arguments. Those are different arguments that we use to show that there's a God who made everything. Okay. Um, well, I know that, uh, and this can be for either of you, because I know, Braxton, you've, uh, you've taken a few questions in a row. So, Jonathan, if you want to jump in on this, or Braxton, doesn't matter, but I know people tend to to put evidential and presuppositional apologetics sort of up against uh, one another. So you mentioned five uh, different kind of ways of doing apologetics, but maybe we can zero in on those. Why do people put pit against each other, evidential and presuppositional apologetics? Uh, what is it? inherent to those two that makes them uh, contrast with one another. So Pritchett, Pritchett should speak to that, and he has a lot to say about presuppositional apologetics that might surprise you. But I do want to, just to clarify something I said, there are five views, but as you're kind of, I think, seeing there the importance of this, 
there are you can break those down into two groups presuppositional and uh evidential broadly uh and 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 that's so classical evidential and cumulative case you could put all those under evidential the types that give evidence uh of a certain sort and then and then presuppositional would be opposed to that in some ways pritchett yeah, I, I know a lot of people are, are not fans of what I have to say about this on either side of these. Braxton's not a fan, even though, you know, he he and I agree on 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 certain things about apologetic method. But this is one of those areas where we disagree. But then presuppositionalists will also disagree with me on this as well. Um, th these two are are opposed uh, more in practice than they are in theory. Uh, because the theory behind presuppositionalism is that reformed theology or Calvinism is a necessary precondition to be uh, engaging in presuppositional methodology. And I think that this is patently false and nobody, including our dear friend Eli Ayala, who's about the nicest presuppositionalist you'll find on the Internet, because as much as I appreciate presuppositionalism, presuppositionalists tend to be ornery bunch. And, and so I, I don't have very many friends in that circle, but uh, I love Eli to death. But he's never convinced me that Reformed theology is a necessary precondition to engage in presuppositional apologetics because I do it all the time. Uh, not not uh, full throttle presuppositionalist, but I take the best of presuppositional method. Uh, so they're, they're opposed my, uh, primarily um, on theological grounds. Um, and even though... Uh, some Reformed people are classical apologists. Uh, if you look into the Reformed Baptist crowd, for example, they're they're heavy into the presuppositional method, and their their objection is primarily theological, not necessarily against arguments themselves. But the presuppositionalist claim is that if you are presenting arguments and you're putting your opponent in a position uh, to to um, use their own autonomous reason to evaluate the arguments rather than forcing them to submit that that you know god is king the word of god is inspired christianity's truth is a necessary precondition to even have conversations about reason and logic and argumentation in, in the first place now i don't see um reformed theology as a precondition in fact i can name there's a there's an internet uh evangelist on youtube who is a self-proclaiming pelagian about as opposite from reformed as you can get and he has no problem with the label Pelagian. And he also, uh, his name is Kerrigan Skelly, I think. And I watched a video where he talks about using presuppositional apologetics and he doesn't really care for all the other methods. So I'm like, well, here's a guy who's as opposite from Calvinism you can get using it. And, and to his credit, while I disagree with his Pelagianism, I do agree that reformed theology is not necessary to implement the best parts of presuppositionalism, which are, exposing the 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 borrowed capital so to speak how much they have to borrow from from a theistic worldview or a christian worldview in order to make the arguments that christianity is false you know exposing the gaps uh, in their thinking that they can't account for what we call a grounding or an ontological basis for for even things as such as reason and logic based tool that we use in rhetorical discourse that they can't give an account for that that's the best of presuppositionalism but uh, to me uh, my favorite method is uh, probably either cumulative case or um, what I call toolkit apologetics is they all have all these methods all those five methods that Braxton mentioned they all have pros and cons but you can you these people who debate 
the best method on the internet. Ignore those debates. Use the best of each in service to witnessing for Christ. And the more you understand these uh, methods, the more you can understand in the course of conversations with lost people where you can pull out of your apologetics toolkit the best of each method for the way the conversation is going with lost people. So I, I don't throw anything out of my tool belt that's useful. So that's my position okay. on it. So, so if I if I were to kind of lobby this idea back to you, uh, there's people who are watching and they're like, okay, presuppositional, uh, evidential. Um, I would understand just to communicate to the audience, and I want your you guys' feedback on this. Um, I understand these forms of methods to to be the rational tools that we use to communicate the gospel to unbelievers. An evidentialist approach says, I'm going to provide you evidence. I'm allow you to reason with the evidence. And if the evidence seems viable to you, then you ought to believe this thing. Presuppositionalism says you must believe in this thing. Anything else that you believe in uh, that, that doesn't make sense to the uniformity in the laws of nature. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense uh, uh, for uh, of morality for us to just have arbitrary social contracts. There has to be something that that supersedes our created order when it comes to logic and morality and reason and the uniformity of the laws of nature for you to to hold a, a consistent worldview. So. So one position is trying to compel a person to believe something. The, how, how do I say it? it seems more epistemological. It doesn't seem so much theological. And I think it's the reason that the Calvinist tends to lean into presuppositional apologetics uh, because they said, yeah. hey, you could provide a person with as much evidence as possible. Uh, evidence isn't what is going to convert the human heart. It's going to be a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they would That's say, right. so what you must do is you must affirm over and over and over uh, what the truth is and say that anything else that they're believing, any if they move away and try to look for evidence, you bring them back to how, how you, you can't possibly make sense of your worldview without the Christian faith that the christian faith gives uniformity to all of these areas of life so so it yeah, seems more to me to be epistemological than theological but i can see yeah. how those two things are actually really and, interwoven well that's, that's right and, less, and, it, and it, go ahead that's more or less, yeah that's more or less correct the problem is is everyone affirms that it requires a work of the spirit on, on the heart in order for conversion Amen. to take place the 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 calvinist will uh, um, assert that it takes a regeneration that precedes faith. So that's a distinction that I'd like to make. But that is more or less correct. That's the thinking. The problem with that is anyone who actually does evangelism knows that even though I agree with the presuppositionalists that uh, they can't account for for this, you know, even just arguments, uh, reason, logic, all these, you know, the, the, the necessary philosophical underwriting to make those things go is the Christian worldview, and they need to acknowledge that. The problem is, is when you talk to people, they don't care. And in fact, uh, what's becoming more and more fashionable, whether they are explicit or even implicit in the way that they talk, but some people are explicit about this, they don't even care about being intellectually consistent in that way or, you know, logically rigid. I mean, we thought that postmodernism had died out, you know, by the late, I don't know, 2010s, you know, 2012, maybe it's last breathed its last gasps with the emergent church. And all of a sudden now here we are it's in full swing. Yeah, it's in, It has came back with a vengeance kind of smuggled into a lot of these critical theories that has kind of been dumped out into the larger culture. And so when that kind of thinking becomes fashionable, 
it doesn't really, you can tell people that they're, they're, they're inconsistent and all they're going to do is get irritated with you and say, well, that doesn't really matter. That's, that's your opinion. That's not, you know, that's not how I see things. And so you can try to tell them that they need a Christian worldview in order to have things like reason and logic and, and, you know, uh, consistency in thought and consistency in, in their arguments and stuff. And they're just not going to care. So, um, I believe that my Calvinist brothers should affirm that God uses means and he can use the means of evidence and persuasion, um, whether they're classical arguments or evidential approach with the resurrection or uh, with presuppositionalism, because God's going to use means even in Calvinism. So why would God not use all the means available, which is, takes me back to my toolkit apologetics method. So that's okay. my response to that. Braxton, right. did you have right, something so you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to say that to, to make this clear um, for people, the Calvinist believes that because of fallenness, we have what's called the noetic effects of sin. Our thinking is fallen. And, and of course, we, we believe that we're fallen too. But the extent to which this fallenness has occurred in man means for the Calvinist that, um, first of all, the, the, the unregenerate man doesn't want the things of God. And so he won't go looking for the things of God. But for that reason, until he's irresistibly graced, then these arguments are going to fall on deaf ears because who do you think you are to get down in the dirt with the, as you were saying a moment ago, and, and to reason up towards some conclusion. Uh, and so it often becomes for presuppositionalists knocking out the legs out from under their, you know, the, the opposing presuppositions of the unbeliever. But as Pritchett pointed out, and I'm glad he did right there at the end, and I don't think it's a point to be missed. I tell the students here that I have in apologetics, our first apologetics program at Trinity is, look, um, it, you're, if you believe, uh, I hear my Calvinist brothers and sisters say all the time that God uses means. Uh, preaching is one of the means that God uses. Okay, well, uh, a good apologetic presentation, even if it's an evidential one, is is uh, is preaching. It's the proclamation of the truth. Now that that proclamation includes evidence instead of say human interest stories or illustrations, should only be a benefit. I think it's the preaching of the gospel, especially if it uh, if it should include the resurrection of Jesus. Then uh, then I don't see why God, even on the Calvinist framework, uh, wouldn't use that like He uses preaching. So. Okay. Well, I'm a Calvinist and I, I would agree with you on that. I have no problem with evidential. Um, so maybe some of my Calvinist brothers and sisters are like, you what? But on um, that reform <laughs> spectrum, Michael, you're on the lighter side. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, maybe dr drilling in a little bit on presuppositional, because I think when most people, even those, for anyone who knows what the term apologetics is, and you defined it as making a defense of the faith, I think everyone's mind who's not really well studied in these things doesn't even think of presuppositional as an option. I think they only think of evidentialist, even if they don't have the vocabulary to think about it. They're thinking about how do I defend resurrection? How do I defend the Bible? How do I defend this or that claim of the Bible? I mean, they're, they're thinking like an evidentialist. And so to kind of zero in and help our viewers understand presuppositional apologetics, uh, maybe you could give us an example. Uh, I know you aren't presuppositionalist, but you you did seem to indicate, at least Jonathan did, that there are some aspects of it that that you would put in your toolkit that you that you do like about it. It's just you wouldn't want it standalone. At least that's my understanding. And so maybe you could help us understand what would a great like the best of the presuppositionalists, how would they go about it, in your opinion? And then the flip side, the worst of the presuppositionalists. Like, because I could imagine a presupposition.
Angeles, uh, and I think Jonathan said this, they they can tend to be a little mean-spirited sometimes. Like I like if if you're unwilling to present evidence, I'm imagining this conversation with a, you know, saved person, the apologist and a lost person, the lost person saying, "You have no evidence for the resurrection." And then the presuppositionalist being like, "You're a sinner and Jesus is Lord." <laughs> like I mean, <laughs> like maybe not even having conversational awareness. So how do you uh, just what would you put as like what you've seen at its worst and what you've seen at its best with presuppositional apologetics? So I'll let Pritchett handle it. Uh, he can answer this however he wants, since he is the one who said he likes to use it on occasion. But uh, for me, I, I we mentioned this guy before, and I'm sure he'll be thrilled to know that. But Eli Ayala is a friend of ours. He runs a channel called Revealed Apologetics. I think he does a, a fantastic job with the presuppositionalism. We have disagreements. We even have disagreements about presuppositionalism. We talk about every week about those. And he's a Calvinist. But he is the sort that, um, th that uh, you know, you can use evidences and, and those sorts of things. Bonson thought you could use, Greg Bonson, who uh, big influential in all this. He, you could use evidences like, a, like one of us would. It's just what, you know, your awareness of why you're using that and what you're using that for. But what he would do is he would dig in. It would be a conversation. He would start challenging. And, and if, if I get this wrong, he'll forgive me. But this is basically right. He would start challenging how they can claim to know the things that they claim to know. How do they claim to on what do they build their framework of knowledge? Because to him, um, you have the Trinitarian God of Scripture and uh, to reject that, it, that God exists because of the impossibility of the contrary. If you don't have the Trinitarian God of Scripture, well, then logic doesn't make sense. You have no grounding for logic. So you're going to get back to saying something like, like, uh, well, I, I know this because um, I can trust my senses. Well, how do you know that? Well, I, I, I can know this because at least I know I exist. And, and so if I know I exist, I can reason. And it really gets back to that place where what do you, what is at the base of what you claim, uh, as your foundation for knowing anything at all, because without the Trinitarian God of scripture, none of that's going to make sense with him then. So, and with the truth of scripture presupposed, you can make sense out of reality. And, and, uh, and if you try to make sense out of reality without the God of Scripture, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. And so uh, Cornelius Van Til, one of, the, one of the, uh, you know, the guy that's credited as being one of the first to really take this and put it in the, the form that we use it today or that we talk about it today, he said it was like the unbelievers like climbing up into God's lap to slap his face. It's like you couldn't slap mm -hmm. his face or, uh, unless you were sitting in his lap. Um, and or maybe said your father climbing up in your father's, but basically, so that's how a presuppositionalist might function is to say, let's talk about how you claim to know the things that you claim to know. And then let's, cause you're going to have some presuppositions. I have some presuppositions and let's see how your presuppositions fare and they won't fare good. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's a way that this will go. And it might include evidences, but the, the important difference for a, a thoroughly Calvinistic presuppositionalist is to say, but but ultimately, this reasoning up to God with with human argumentation—that's that's not really what's going to ultimately cause you know be effective. What's going to be effective is God's going to step in at some point and irresistibly grace the person. I, I don't, you know, Pritchett. What would you say to fill that out? Well, I, I would say classical apologists will use transcendental arguments. So uh, the that's moral the argument. argument. That's the to tell what that is transcendental argument 
Well, that, that's where that's where you get the uh, the impossibility of the contrary, but that's where it's kind of top down, right? So a moral argument is uh, is a type of transcendental argument where you're making an appeal, uh, and whether some of the complaints are valid about it being an appeal to intuition or whatever, is that that God is the best explanation for why we have this idea of morality and things being objectively right and wrong, objectively good and evil. So that's a type of uh, of, of transcendental argument, but you could you could say why we have anything at all as opposed to nothing. So when going back to what Braxton was saying, the best of presuppositionalism is going to do two things: is, is going to one demonstrate why God is a necessary precondition for all of the things that people want. So if people want to use reason and arguments uh, and logic to argue against God's existence. That's the crawling up in the God's lap because you're going to say, well, God as an eternal active mind uh, has always been logical. And that grounds logic that trans transcends the created cosmos. And the reason why rational creatures can, uh, you know, identify epistemologically those things, you know, why does logic take root? Why is the law of non-contradiction something can't be and not be at the same time in the same? Why is that true? And we can appeal to God's, you know, eternal active mind, knowing that as the the source and grounding of that. Whereas you can ask the atheist who wants to make an argument before you make a logical argument. What where do you find logic? If if you believe that the cosmos is nothing but space dust, show me which bit of space dust is the laws of logic. Where where do you get that from? Uh, yeah, and to put it to put this in in the words of a presuppositionalist, or to give you the words of a presuppositionalist, John Frame says about this. And I think this kind of nutshells it. We should about the presuppositional method. We should present the biblical God not merely as the conclusion to an argument, but as the one who makes argument possible. And he says that in the Five Views on Apologetics book. Yeah. So I think that kind of nutshells it. It's fantastic. So yeah. The, Go ahead, the best. Jonathan. The best of presuppositionalism that I, I like is two things. One, a good transcendental argument. I think the moral argument counts as that. But two, also exposing the weaknesses in alternative worldviews by demonstrating you don't have to use the by what standard line and you don't have to use the you know uh, impossibility of the contrary and, and say that every five minutes uh, as an assertion that's not convincing anybody. But you can show how theism and Christian theism specifically is superior to ground things like reason, logic, intelligibility, you know, the rational nature of the cosmos, how we can epistemologically understand uh, basics of morality, how we can, um, how, why math works, you know, things like that. Whereas you're asking people, especially if they're, they're atheist, um, where do you get all this from space dust? Space dust in a blender will not give you a moral code nor a way to understand a moral code. So where, where are you getting this from? So the best of presuppositionalism is digging out why people are making these assertions about why things are good, why things are evil, you know, uh, why science tells us anything. And you, you say, well, what is underneath that? And presuppositionalists often do a good job exposing that there really is no way for them to account what is underneath all of their claims Whereas, you know, the God of Christianity presents us, you know, a coherent being presents us with a coherent creation that we can decipher. And so I think that that's a powerful use of the presuppositional method when talking to people, when they make claims, you ask, 
on what basis can you make that claim? Or as the presuppositions say, by what standard do you make that claim? You know. Yeah. So so when we're we're talking about these things, you know, Braxton, I'll toss this over to you. You you had mentioned earlier. Well, Jonathan had mentioned of you earlier that you were an apologist, but you were also an evangelist. And and we were forty minutes into this conversation. People are watching. They're listening to presuppositionalism, evidentialism. They're hearing all these various arguments being tossed at them. And half of the people that are watching are like, you're, you're using words that I don't even know what they mean, right? Like all this fancy book learning, I just want to see my friends get saved. Um, how, how much of this is in the average hands of like a, a believer, like the average believer out there, the, the painter, the, the CEO, the, the garbage dude, like the farmer, like all these different people from uh, different walks of life and socioeconomic classes. And they're just kind of all coming together and they all know that, that in some level they're supposed to share their faith. But I often hear people say things like, well, that's for you. Cause you know, you've got this theological mind, you're a teacher or you're an evangelist. And we've, we've created a culture in the West that really, uh, we outsource expertise. Like nobody knows how to change a spark plug anymore. We have to go to a mechanic. And we live in a day where we're really good at one thing, but this idea of apologetics we've left up for the professionals. And I feel like the world is spiraling out of control because of it. How would you encourage you know, the average believer to get involved in evangelism and apologetics? Is this for everyone or for the elect few Navy SEAL evangelist Christians that God is, you know, sovereignly called? Uh, how would, how would you encourage people? Well, you know, I, I, here's the thing. I think that, uh, everyone should know something about these things, but not everyone needs to be a Navy SEAL, as you say, not everyone has to have a PhD in something related to this. I mean, uh, but and, and the difficult things, the very difficult things can be put very simply. Uh, sometimes skeptics, atheists and such will argue and say, well, you, you make it so complicated. You have to have a Ph.D. to understand this big argument before you can ever. And they might be talking about something like the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. And, yeah, we can go into like 15 premises on an argument. But with an argument like that, you can also frame it like this. Um, everything that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. When my little girl says something like, I know, I know there's a God because he's the one that made everything. Well, we, we have to challenge that. We have to look at that, but that's pretty well what we're talking about. And we can take that really deep. The question is how deep do you want to go? And I don't think you have to go as deep as say the two of us want to go with that. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote a book core facts and it's an acrostic that is supposed to help everyday people, you know, church people to pick up and use some of these things. They have to want to understand it, but I think they can. And I shared those. I had a lady in our church come to me and say, I have a son who has, uh, he's saying he's an atheist. Um, would you talk to him? And this wasn't some other church. They brought me in just for this. This was the church I attend. And I said, yeah, let's, I'll talk to him if he wants to talk. And so, um, I wrote, let's see, he wrote this. His name was Drew. He wrote this. He said, we met for lunch at a local Mexican restaurant. And by the way, I have found that to be incredibly helpful when you're having these kind of worldview discussions to be at a Mexican restaurant, because just something with the flour the and, the cheese and the salsa mm -hmm. is just, your defenses are down. And yes, I said, and, and, and he said, and that's when my life really changed for the better. We continued meeting and discussing God and the truth about Jesus. I was baffled at how much evidence there really is. No one had ever talked to me about Christian apologetics. It surprised me to hear that there were people out there that are trying to give evidence for God's existence and who Jesus was. Apologetics made me take a second look at what religion was and why Christianity is worth believing. So I, 
I, I another thing quickly, I'll just add, I was uh, speaking at the unapologetics conference put on by Texas Baptist a few years ago, and I gave a talk on the core facts, this this system of, of remembering these apologetics ideas that I came up with. And uh, and this woman who was, I think, in her 60s had never heard of this um, and wouldn't have been interested in it. It just wasn't her thing. And she's certainly not. You wouldn't think going for a Ph.D. in it, but she has a grandson who has become an atheist. And she wanted something to reach him. And so she signed up for classes at our school so that she could learn apologetics. So here's what I would say. You don't have to be Bruce Lee with apologetics, but you should learn a few things because if you can learn some basic ideas, it can help you in, uh, in, in moments when you have a, a loved one or a friend. Um, and, and, you know, real quickly on the end of that, First Peter 3.15 is where we get that be ready and willing always to give an answer to anyone who asks. It's the, it's the apologetics verse. You'll hear it at every apologetics conference. But that's in a letter, First uh, Peter, that is a cyclical letter. If you look at the beginning of the letter, there are several different uh, congregations, cities mentioned. And uh, this was meant to be taken to people across Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. And so the, the idea is, this wasn't for one church for one reason. This is something that everyone in that region and perhaps every Christian should take up this uh, task of knowing some things to say in defense. And so I, I, that's kind of what I'd say to that. Yeah. Can I can I pick up on that? Sure. Um, let's talk about the Bible for a second, because Braxton mentioned first Peter. Uh, I, I, I'm a Peter guy. I, I, I care more about Peter's two epistles than all 13 of Paul's letters, just because there's fewer of them. Um, but um like Braxton had said, well, to be a Pauline scholar, you have to read in exponentially more books. Um, but First Peter 3.15 is typically the apologist's favorite verse to quote. But I like to look at it in context. And this is why it goes back to your question, is this for everybody or just the uh, Navy SEALs? And this is for everybody. And this is where you start with apologetics. Because let's look at the context, starting verse 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ as uh, the Lord as holy. Be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks of you for a reason that a hope within you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, uh, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now notice the context. Where does your apologetics start? It starts with being a good person. Verse 13, for devoted to what is good. Uh, verse 14, suffer for righteousness. Um, verse 16, those who disparage you for your good conduct in Christ. Verse 17, to suffer for doing good. See, the emphasis on this, where we get this apologetics first and we start talking about classicalism and, and uh, evidentialism and presupposition, forget all that. It starts with being a good Christian, living holy and suffering for uh, the sake of righteousness. So if you're living that out in That's your good. community, what happens is you get asked about the hope that is within you. And if you see that word hope, it takes you back to the first chapter, first uh, Peter chapter one uh, in verse three, where it talks about having been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So your first thing is to, your first apologetic is being a good Christian in your community and in your local church. Your second thing is to understand what the gospel is, because that is your living hope uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I think first, be a good Christian. Second, 
understand why you're a Christian, what you believe about Christianity as far as, you know, Jesus died on the cross for sinners and God raised Jesus from the dead. And people confess with their mouth that, you know, Christ is Lord, believe in the heart God raised from the dead, they'll be saved. That's where you begin in apologetics. And then I think because the resurrection is mentioned there, and that is our living hope, I think you move to arguments for for the resurrection. And if you want to have arguments for God's existence, I think core facts is great because the core of, of Braxton's book, and I'm not here to just sell you uh, Braxton's books. I do plenty of Please. that finding at seminary classes, but it is really great because that acrostic, the first part of the book deals with arguments for God's existence. The whole second half deals with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I really like the way he set that up because I, I gravitate to the second half of that book simply because I think the resurrection is the central key of the Christian faith. Without it, you know, we're, we're still on our sins and our, our faith is worthless. So going back to 1 Peter 3.15, look at verse 13 through uh, 17. Understand that your hope is in Jesus Christ, you know, and be a good Christian. That is the emphasis of the passage. So are you supposed to be an apologist? Depends on if you think that you're supposed to be living for Christ. And so okay. I think that is Christian. So that's what I wanted to That'll preach, piggyback. man. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, could we uh, keep reading in First Peter 3 and have you answer uh, what it means that Jesus preached to the spirits now in prison? I'm kidding. I won't make you answer that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, my I, colleague, I, Dr. Uh, Jonathan Pritchett, will handle that. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I love that because I... There, oh, he is going to answer joking. I was joking. <laughs> just... But okay. Go. We did talk about this. So let me make a shameless plug then. We did talk about this in the Trinity Radio live stream about Good. three weeks ago. So go check oh, wow. that out. Just to preview it, I think that, that it's Jesus giving a victory lap, so to speak, to to uh, the spirit of prison. That's how, but, that's how yeah. I view it. Uh, yeah. Great. Okay. So uh, actually, no. So you you did start though. I mean, you went to you went to First Peter, the classic verse of First Peter three fifteen for why apologetics is a good thing. Uh, maybe take us to other parts of the Bible, the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles throughout the Book of Acts. If you were to try to make a case to somebody for why apologetics is a good thing to practice, look, Jesus did it here. Look, Peter did it there. Look, Paul did it there. Where would you go if you wanted to make a defense for the ministry of apologetics? So the place that I would go is I would take them to Acts chapter 17, and I would point out that here, also a favorite verse among apologists, but also a, a classic passage in general. And what you have there is Paul um, approaching the uh, Athenian you know, trained philosophers and people that were aware of these sorts of things. And he, I, th I think that he's approaching these people. I think he's illustrating First Peter three fifteen in a good way. He's approaching these people, and I see him. Obviously, he's going to preach boldly later on. In fact, they it comes off the rails. Paul doesn't come off the rails, but they come off the rails later on because of uh, his speaking about a judgment and God raising man from the dead and all those kind of things. But it's important to point out that he he begins by saying to them, you know, I've seen that you're very religious. You know, you, you have all of these altars, you know, some some have said there's is easier to find an altar than a man in those days. And you have all these altars in Athens and, and here's an altar to an unknown God. And Paul uses that. Um, by the way, they, they found a, a, an altar that part of it's torn away, but it looks like it says something like altar to unknown God or unknown gods um, at, I think, the Temple of Pergamum. But uh, but so this was a real thing. But but whatever the reason for that altar. 
uh, he uses it as a jumping off point from a cultural context uh, to begin reasoning with them about a one God who made everything. Well, as a classical apologist who I said at the top of the show wants to show that first God made everything and then there's a God who made everything. And then second, he raised Jesus from the dead. I can't help but notice that this is kind of what Paul does. He's he, he ingratiates himself to them. Hey, I see that you're very religious. Here's there's one God who made everything. He, he even appointed the times and habitations and all that sort of thing. Uh, even your own poets, even your own pagan poets are saying uh, that we are his offspring, we're his children. Now, not obviously in a regenerate sense. He wasn't telling them they were already saved, but but in in, a, in the sense that humans, are, our source is God. We come from God. He made us, so um, we come from him. And then he preached the resurrection. So he showed that there's a God who made everything and, th- and gave them good reason from their context anyway, a little different than a 21st century you know, empiricism, but, but still he shows that there's one God who made everything. And then he shows that there, that this God demonstrated who he was by raising Jesus from the dead, raising a man from the dead. And he went ahead and said, repent. So right there's my ministry, right? There's my ministry is mm-hmm. I want to show that there's a God who made everything that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if that's true, you need to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to get saved because if this is true, then, uh, then it must be believed. Uh, it should be believed. It should be accepted. And so I think that's a great place to go to see Paul um, sort of uh, me, uh, modeling uh, apologetics, at least with respect to philosophically trained people in his day. Yeah, you can go to uh, Acts chapter two or Acts chapter eight with Philip. But but I like I'm a Peter guy. So Peter uses uh, arguments from fulfilled prophecy in Acts chapter two at the Pentecost sermon. You know, uh, Philip uh jumping up in the chariot with the eunuch reading from Isaiah uh, points from that to, to, to Jesus, Jesus and his ministry all throughout the synoptics. Uh, you will find him in what we call challenge repost contests where the, the Pharisees would try to trap him on, on something. And so Jesus would try to uh, answer the challenge and then dazzle the crowd with his response uh, making arguments from scripture. So when you look at uh, Jesus, you look at uh, Peter, you, you look at uh, Stephen, you can, uh, uh, and, and Philip, you can make arguments from scripture. Uh, that, that is in itself, I call it biblical apologetics, because one of the things that, that, that uh, too many upcoming apologists, and, and Braxton I, I made a, a book about this. He's made several podcasts about this. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't get to participate. I wasn't here yet. But <laughs> uh, apologists um, sometimes forget to learn the Bible and theology when they get it, and so they go too far into the um, into the ph- philosophical stuff. But what they don't realize, and and this is partly another problem with apologists that don't do much personal evangelism, is that when you actually engage in personal evangelism, people are going to have objections about the Bible. People are going to have objections about the doctrine of hell. People are going to have objections of why why would God kill an innocent person uh, for somebody else? So theology turns out to matter a lot more. When it, why, why do Christians believe this? Why do Christians believe that? You're going to get on the street, you're going to get a lot more of that than you are, you know, um, high-level atheist philosophical arguments against God's existence. They're going to come right at you about your Bible that you believe. And so you can see Jesus answering challenges from Scripture. You can see Jesus answering Satan from Scripture. You can see uh, making arguments from fulfilled prophecy for Christianity. And I I think apologists too quickly try to jump away from the Bible instead of jumping first into the Bible. That's good. 
I'd be curious uh, for you guys uh, to weigh in on like doing apologetics and because I think some of us can go, okay, I want to make a defense of my faith. I'm going to read this book and then I'm going to be an apologist, right? Like uh, I, I find that, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would buy me these books on how to draw, right? And if I didn't spend time practicing what the book was giving me, I wasn't going to become a better artist. Like it just doesn't happen that way. And I, I find personally that the, um, you know, I, I did evangelism. My The church that I was raised in had a, a huge culture of evangelism. So we did a lot of evangelism in Bible school. I did on-campus ministry in public high schools from the ages of 17 to 19. Um, so a couple of years there doing evangelism. We uh, traveled with an evangelist for three years doing ministry uh, for homeless people, doing evangelism. We went to the homosexual district of Dallas uh, and Oakland, did evangelism there on the weekends. We would do door-to-door stuff. We would do evangelism in churches. Like when we were doing evangelism all the time. And I found that, you know, you don't know that you know the arguments until the rubber hits the road. Would you guys kind of like weigh in on what it looks like um, to just know some of the apologetic arguments versus engaging with those? I think there might be some people who've read the book and then started engaging with a family member or friend and had their, you know, uh, the, 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 the wind knock out of them, you know, proverbially speaking, and they, they kind of, you know, worry about doing those kinds of apologetic things. Can you maybe speak into the practice of evangelism and apologetics? Yeah. Um, in fact, this is something that I'm really interested in because I want apologetics to be used for evangelism. Uh, or as part of evangelism, th- th- making it as simple as possible is my thing. I-, I wrote the book Core Facts that has no new arguments, but is a way of remembering the arguments because I wanted to give some give people something like that that would be simple. But I even have tried more than that. I wrote a, a, a Christian fiction series that it's intended to help teach apologetics. Uh, this kind of a dystopian Hunger Games sort of idea, you know, sort of vibe. But um, I'm looking for every way to try and make it as simple as possible. And so I can tell you, this is about as simple as I can make this, is to say, um, when when people, back in the day, I I don't know if you guys have this, but growing up an evangelical and a pastor's son and, and then pastoring two churches, we always wanted people to go out witnessing and do evangelism. And so we had like evangelism training. And it was really hard because everybody's terrified to do that and they don't think they can. And they're afraid they're going to like confirm someone in their unbelief or something. And then apologetics, you try to get people to learn apologetics, same thing. And then what I'm doing is I'm taking both of those things together and saying, well, how about that? And of course that's very frightening, but here's the thing. As long as you're willing to say one phrase, it does not have to be scary. And here's the one phrase. I don't know. You might think, well, yeah, but Braxton, then they're all going to know that you don't know. And yeah, that's fine because you don't know. And I think it's a very dangerous thing that that young pulpiteers, young preachers kind of grow up with this vibe that, well, listen, if somebody asks you something, you better be able to s- slam the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord. And I thought, well, what if you don't even know what the Lord thus saith about a particular thing? So what you got to do is I think every person here today that's listening to this, whether they ever heard of apologetics before or not, can leave this live stream and be a Christian apologist, just like I think the Bible wants you to. And, and that's because you may not be able to be an answer giver yet in the sense that we're talking about now where you can kind of answer all these objections and tear down arguments. But you can be an answer finder for people. You can say, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to go find out and I'm going to come back and we'll talk about it. And what's so great about that is 
you've just, I mean, if they were feeling like there was some sort of a, you know, a battle going on here or you were arrogant, well, all that's torn away because you just said you didn't know and you validated their question. It was a good question because you don't know and you're going to go find out and you can all learn from it. And I think that is very important. People can start doing this now as long as they're willing to say, I don't know. If they're not willing to say, I don't know, and they make something up, that's how false religions get started. So don't do that. Yeah. That's good. You know, that's, that's good. That's a fantastic response. And we're kind of at this point of our show where we, we need to wrap things up. So I want to thank you both for coming on. And, and after this, we're actually going to tape a little video for those on Patreon because there's a bunch of questions in here that I didn't get to ask that I wanted to ask. So for those of you who are watching and you want to keep going with this conversation, I want you to check out uh, Trinity Radio. You, you see at the the title uh, of the video, there's an at Braxton Hunter. If you click that, it will take you to uh, Trinity Radio's YouTube channel. Uh, if you're interested in apologetics, if you're wanting to learn more about how to share your faith and engage with unbelievers on cultural issues and issues of theology, you need to go over there and subscribe to their channel. Our channel is a little bit different on this space in that we we dive into theology and trying to uh, learn from various groups in, in various ways and, and engaging on history and theology and the gifts of the Spirit. But the apologetics... Uh, branch of Christian theology is so needed, uh, and, and the expertise over at Trinity Radio is a perfect place to continue to grow in your knowledge uh, of apologetics and evangelism. So we encourage you to go check that out, uh, subscribe to the channel, and, and follow them for more content like that. Now, if you want to uh, check out the follow-up part of this conversation, and you want to hear us over on Patreon, there's a link in the description of this video. Just click the, the description button and it drops down. There, there's a link for PayPal. You can give a one-time donation if you want to give there. Uh, but if you give on Patreon, it will subscribe you to our content there. There's a, an archive of existing content and then regular content like this that we publishing there as well. Uh, Michael Roundtree, am I missing anything before we, we wrap things up? Uh, I don't know. Do we want to do a closing thought? Yeah, yeah, we can do a closing thought for those of you guys who are out there. Uh, uh, Braxton, I'll ask you and Jonathan as well to kind of one thing to summarize our conversation, kind of gold nugget to have people uh, walk away thinking about. Uh, Michael, I'll start with you and we'll kind of walk through the line. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, man, there was a lot, of, a lot of good stuff that you guys shared. Thank you so much. I, th I think that if there was one thing and I, that I appreciated about you guys is that it was apologetics for the purpose of evangelism, not just for me to kind of strengthen my own faith, although I think it, you know, that's that's a good element of apologetics, but we want to share the gospel. And I think as Christians, we can spend hours debating people about the best way to share the gospel. Hours investing and reading this book about, well, it should be presuppositional, and this book about, well, it should be evidential. And we, we, we spend hours and hours talking about how to share the gospel, but we just never get around to actually sharing the gospel. And so I would just say, share the gospel, go out and preach Jesus to people and use apologetics in it. Hey, I'm charismatic, so I'm going to go ahead and throw this one in there. Pray for the sick. It's a really great way to share the gospel. And uh, it might even uh, uh, create opportunities for apologetics. You can mix it all together, but go out there and share Jesus. I think that would be my closing thought. Uh, Braxton, Jonathan, what about you? What would you guys share as a little closing nugget for our audience? Um, what I would say about it is, yes, apologetics, if you decide, if, if you just discovered apologetics and you start to get into it, um, oftentimes what happens is that people like me and, and the other guys seated here will we'll talk. All that apologetics is used for is for them to hang out after church on Sunday on the back row and talk about some new argument they heard, video they saw or book they read. And then they may go home and feel like they're doing the Lord's work by arguing with people on the Internet. 
and they're geeks for apologetics like they're geeks for Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. And that's me too, on both counts, by the way. But um, it's important. Uh, it's fine to be a geek for theology or apologetics or something like that. But as was just said, we think it can be used for something and should be used for something. And what's the best use for it, in my opinion, is why defend the Christian faith, but that people might believe the Christian faith and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They say it in preachers' conferences all the time, and we should say it to apologists as well, is that if you're interested in defending Christianity, then make sure that whatever you're doing at the end, you make a beeline to Jesus and uh, the need for salvation by placing their faith in him. Yeah, I just want to say, echo the sentiment about uh, praying for the sick as a, as a fellow charismatic or continuationist. Um, what? what? Goes, yeah, goes back to what I, I, I said earlier. Grow in holiness, live out your Christian faith, pray for the sick, feed the hungry, things like that. Uh, in your community, preach the gospel as you're sharing your, you know, as, as, as you're going about your daily life, be different, be Christian in your public life, as well as your private life. Don't have a secular sacred divide. And people will ask you for what is it about you? This, this, this hopefulness that you have, and that will open up doors to share the gospel. And, and that's where your apologetics start. So, you know, be Christian and grow in sanctification. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for uh, tuning into this program. Uh, Trinity Radio guys, Braxton uh, and Jonathan, thank you so much for tuning in with us. Uh, I appreciate you guys coming on the show and taking time out of your day to do this. Uh, and, and for those of you watching, make sure to go sub over there at their channel. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into this program, and we'll see you next Monday and Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time.